So I hope that not only here in our corporate worship services, but also in your gospel community groups and in your homes with your children, that uh, the time that we've spent in Titus is uh, here as, as a body of believers who come together uh, to worship around the word, that this is rippling out into the smaller gatherings, whether it be in your group or in your home. So working our way through Titus, and today we come to chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So you can go ahead and turn there now, if you would. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So far, we've looked at a gospel worker as we came to those first four verses, and we saw Paul the Apostle, who was very much at work in the Mediterranean world, bringing people to Christ or proclaiming the gospel, specifically his ministry to the Gentiles, And he writes this letter to Titus, who is ministering on the island of Crete. And we looked at Paul as a gospel worker and how what we could sort of extract from that. What were the implications for us as we went through those first four verses? A gospel worker. And then we came to the qualifications for an elder. And we looked at the topic of a gospel leader, that that there's gospel work always going on, but that in the local church, there are individuals who are tasked with leading the church. These are gospel men, and these are men who must meet certain qualifications and must pursue godliness as outlined here in this passage. And so that's what we looked at from verses five to nine. And then last week, we looked at a gospel threat, the threat of false teachers and their teaching And we talked about the threat that that is to the universal church as well as to the local church. And today we come to the topic of a gospel life as we enter into chapter 2 of this very short epistle. So chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, a gospel life. Why am I entitling this sermon, A Gospel Life? Well, in order to understand that, you have to look at the opening words of chapter 2. Paul, writing to Titus, says this. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Paul has just finished warning Titus about the threat, the danger of false teachers in their teaching, as I just said. And what these false teachers do at the core, what they do ultimately is they replace the gospel with something else. That's what we found in the passage that we looked at last week. They replace the doctrine of God our Savior through and in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. They replace that with human speculation and human commands. That's what we found at the end of the passage last week. So human speculation or human words and human works, what individual people can do in terms of obeying human commands, what other men say we ought to do, we must do, and trying to line up with that and obey those commands replaces God's word and God's commands. God's word and God's commands in Christ. God's work ultimately in Christ as we look to his finished work on the cross. And so there's a replacement that happens where there are false teachers and false teaching, a replacement of something else for the gospel. So what is the result? The result of that is a defiled soul. And that's what we found at the end of our passage last week is that when you replace the gospel with anything, specifically any human work, any human way of reaching up to God or meeting God's standard, anytime you do that, you defile, as Paul says, your mind and your conscience. You defile your understanding and perception and you defile your moral compass, so to speak. You defile yourself entirely from within 
And as a result, all of our behaviors and all of our actions and all of our good works become defiled so that as Paul says there at the end, we become unfit for any good work. But as for you, Titus, that's how we begin chapter two. By contrast, Titus, by contrast to these guys, these false teachers and their gospel replacing teaching, in contrast to those guys, you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That is, teach the character and conduct that accords with the gospel. In other words, here's the main thing I'm getting at, put before the people, Put before the people of Crete, put before the Christians in the churches sprinkled throughout the island of Crete, put before them a gospel life, a life that flows out of, that is driven by, and that points back to and refers back to the gospel. That is precisely what Paul is telling Titus to do at the beginning of chapter two. Put before the people a gospel life, one that accords with God's words and God's works in and through Jesus Christ. So once again, a theme that we've had as we've gone through this series so far on Titus, grace and godliness, once again, come perfectly together, inextricably linked. So look back at chapter one, verse one. I wanna show you something about how chapter two, verse one, and chapter one, verse one, kind of look at the same thing from two different angles or from two different sides. Look at chapter one, verse one. It says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth and see what, look look at what comes next. Their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So chapter one, verse one, looks at it from the front, front end. It looks down and it sees the gospel and it sees the godliness of life that sort of springs up or flows out of the gospel, springs up from or flows out of the gospel. There's the gospel, the the faith of God's elect, the knowledge of the truth, and then from that comes what? Godliness. The doctrine that accords with godliness. No godliness, no gospel. No godliness, no grace. And then in chapter two, verse one, we look at it from the other side. As we see this, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This looks at the works themselves. It looks at the godliness itself, the godly activity, the godly living, the conduct, the behavior, and the character. And it says, this must be in line with that. It looks at it from this side. And it says, this living, this godliness must be that which flows out of the gospel. Two mistakes, two mistakes that we make that we can make as Christians. We can either be grace people or godliness people. Grace people say, grace, grace, I've received God's grace. It really doesn't matter how I live, or maybe you don't say it quite that way, but there's no attention to pursuing godliness. There's no attention to striving. There's no attention to, look, attention to looking at the implications of the gospel. Look at what God's done for me in Christ. I'm just resting. I'm resting and accepting, but not a lot of doing not a lot of striving, not a lot of growing and cultivating. And that kind of grace or that kind of understanding of the gospel is false because it does not lead to godliness. Now what about the godliness folks? 
The folks who are always crossing the T's and dotting the I's and making sure that devotional life's in order. I'm at church, I'm with the people of God every time I possibly can be. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I've shared my faith seven times this week. And so you're, you're, you're sort of keeping a record. You're keeping track of all the things that you do and you judge, or you're always focused on your performance. Always focused on what you're doing and what you're not doing. You're defeated when you're not doing stuff right. Your own kind of idea of what you should be doing. And you're sort of lifted up in your pride when you are doing things fairly well. And so this is a kind of focus on godliness that can be divorced from the gospel of grace. And so maybe you're, you're pretty good at doing and striving, but you're not really good at resting and accepting. And so there are some of us in our church who are, are probably pretty good at resting and accepting, but maybe not good at cultivating doing and growing and striving and mortifying the flesh. And maybe some in our church who are doing and, and growing and mortifying, or they, at least they think they are, but it's not really growing out of resting. It's not growing out of accepting what God has done for us in Christ. Titus brings us to healthy doctrine, healthy Christian living. It takes these things, grace and godliness, and it weds them together in this beautiful portrait of Christian living. That's what we find when we open up Titus. And that, I think, is what we come to once again today as we look at a gospel life. So let's look at our passage. Chapter two, verses one to 10. By the way, we instinctively know this because of two things that we say often. To, when we preach the gospel, when we speak the gospel to people, and when we find it in the scriptures, we see these two words, repent and believe. And repent and believe in many ways encapsulate sort of the two ways, the two, the two angles from which one must look at the fully orbed gospel, repent and believe. What do we also say when we talk about Jesus? We all say this. I've accepted Jesus Christ as what? My Lord and Savior. When we speak that way, we are, we are communicating the very truth that we find in Titus, and that is that there is no Savior without him being also your Lord, and there is no Lord without him also being your Savior. These two things are always together. Okay, Titus 2, 1 to 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith 
so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. A gospel life. Let's pray. Ask for the Lord's help today. <clears throat> our Father, we thank you for the gospel of grace that apart from us, as we re- will read in chapter 3, that apart from us, apart from any works of our own, you have regenerated us by the Holy Spirit because of your mercy. Father, when we open up that very well-known passage of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, and we see what we were, and then verse 4, but God, we realize, God, that everything is of you. Everything that we have is of you, that, that it is, our identity is to rest in you, to accept the free gift of your son as a sacrifice for our sins, to rest in that, to know that our righteousness is not our own, it is Christ's righteousness imputed to us. It's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It will be Christ's righteousness by which we stand at the judgment and not fall and be swept away by your wrath. So God, we praise you for that wonderful, glorious grace. For those in our church who struggle to rest, those in our church here who struggle to just simply rest and accept that glorious gospel and just live there and and know their identity and worth is, is there. God, I pray for them. I pray that the gospel of grace as we go through Titus, especially as we go through Titus 2, 11 to 14, and as we go through Titus 3, verses 3 to 7, that that as the gospel is, is portrayed there in such beautiful terms, that there will be a greater resting, a greater desire to just know you and know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. God, I pray for those of us who struggle also to to, to do, Father, to do, to go out and to, and to labor in the fields, to, to labor in the fields of people who do not know you, to, to be actively engaged in mortifying our flesh daily, dying to sin by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body, abstaining from fleshly desires that wage war against our souls, walking in the Spirit that we will not sow to the flesh. Father, that we would be holy people, that we would be a godly people. And Father, for those in our church who struggle with that, who struggle with maybe perhaps spiritual lethargy or laziness, who, who have not heard the words of Paul in Romans 12, not to be, to be slothful, but to be zealous, be fervent in spirit to serve the Lord. Father, I pray for all of us as a church, wherever we are on this spectrum, would you help us to see clearly, especially today, as we go through this passage, help us live a gospel life, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So from this passage, chapter two, verses one to 10, there are several things that we can say about a gospel life. A gospel life. Or we could say a life that accords with sound doctrine. That is the way that Paul defines it there at the beginning of chapter two. He's gonna go on to talk about the kind of living the kind of behavior, the kind of conduct that is in accord with, in line with, springs up from, flows out of the gospel. And there are several things here that we can see, four things that we'll look at today. It is a life, a gospel life is a life for all ages and all stations. A life of ordinariness and self-control, 
A gospel life is a life of community and continuity. And a gospel life is a life for witness and defense. I say for witness and defense. This has to do with purpose and the objective, at least partially, for why it is we live out a gospel life in our daily lives. Today we will introduce and fly over the passage. Next week we will dig a little deeper into each of the sections. So basically you go through this passage and you see older men, older women, young women, younger men, bond servants. And then of course Titus is folded into all of that there as he begins to treat younger men. And so you've got these various categories and there's a lot of words in this passage. There's a lot of qualities listed in this passage, a lot of details here in this passage. So what we'll do next week is we'll focus a little bit more on the details and we'll go through and look at what exactly does Paul tell Titus he should say to older men and to older women and younger women and younger men and to bond servants. But today what I want to do is kind of reach into and fly over the passage and make some basic observations, some more general observations about this passage as a whole, as a unit, before next week diving deeper into it. This is part one of of two sermons. So number one, a life for all ages and all stations. Notice who is addressed in these verses. Or who Paul wants Titus to address. Verse 10, older men. I'm sorry, not not verse 10. Verse one, older men. Verse three, older women. Verse four, young women. Verse six, younger men. And then verse nine, bondservants. And so as I said before, next week we'll look at these in detail. But for now, the main thing to see is this. A gospel life is for all people. It's for all of us who are Christians. And it has a specific application for every age group and for every station in which we find ourselves. No one is excluded No one is excluded from living out and applying the gospel. Now here I want to speak to older men and older women in particular. There's a a number of applications that can be made uh, from this passage. Uh, that to various groups, and we'll look at that next week as we, as we go through. But as far as this point is concerned, it is a life for all ages and all stations. I want to kind of bring this down specifically today to apply it to older men and older women. So our church is, is largely made up of sort of younger men, younger women. That's just the case. You know, 20s, 30s is kind of the, the, uh, the average or most of the folks here are in that age group. So some of you might be saying, okay, if you don't fit into that category, maybe right now the spotlight is coming down on you as you're feeling a little uncomfortable. I would just say uh, it's far, it was far worse for the elders when for three weeks the elders who were here from sermon to sermon, including myself, the spotlight was on us by name. And so uh, if you're feeling a little uncomfortable because the spotlight's on you, it, it could be worse. So older men and older women you may find that there is a temptation to shut down in the Christian life as you get older. Maybe you have seen that in your own life. You've seen that in people whom you know, other believers, maybe in your own family, that there's a temptation to shut down. The older and older that 
you get. And I think this is especially true in our culture today and for two major reasons, two major reasons in our culture in particular why I think that this is a temptation. The first is we live in a culture of leisure idolatry. That is part of our modern American culture. And I even experienced this when we lived in Great Britain. It, it seemed to me that this was, it's even more pervasive. And I think it may be the case because in America, there's not only the idol of leisure, but there's also the idol of work. And so these things are always sort of competing with one another. Uh, that's the case, I think, throughout. But European society is, you know, I think you get about, uh, about 100 weeks. If there's not even that many weeks in a year. I think you get, uh, I, I, some of them feel, feel that way. But you, you, get, you get so many weeks of, you know, vacation over there. So it's, it's very much a, what will I do this week for my uh, seventh week of vacation for the year kind of thing? And so there, I think even more over there, you see this in the culture, in the way that people think about weekends and evenings and, uh, and holidays, as they call vacations. So we live in a, in a culture where there is leisure idolatry manifesting itself in retirement. I mean, retirement as understood. Now, here, I don't mean just the cessation of work, that it's ungodly to retire, to stop your, your job that you've been employed in for a number of decades. That's not what I'm saying. But retirement sort of encapsulate how this leisure culture is applied to older folks throughout our world. The message of retirement in our culture is if you have the funds, if you've saved up, you've done your work. You've finished your race. You've put in your time. And now you get to devote your life to yourself and to your leisure pursuits. The message, I think, that many people, as they end their work life, as they end their work years, they've raised their children, they've worked for a number of decades in their employment, and now they've come up to the end, and this is the message that is sort of booming through the culture to folks who are approaching that period in life. And so I think as a result, there are a number of temptations that are faced here. One of them is to kind of settle in to kind of settle into to life. You finish striving and working and building and all of that. And, and so you can just sort of settle in, lay back, and kind of complacently coast until you die. <laughs> I mean, that's the morbid aspect of it, but essentially that is what, uh, that's the mindset. You're gonna settle in and coast. Another temptation is to be satisfied with, with past achievements. There are all kinds of folks in the church Older folks in the church who are quite satisfied with all the classes they've taught three decades ago and all of the ways that they've served God's church years ago and the way they raised their kids in the Lord and the way they've mentored and done all kinds of other things in the past. And as a result, there is the temptation once you've sort of reached that end to say, I've done all of that. I've put in my time. I've served I've, I've lived a gospel life. Now it is time to sort of rest on those past achievements. Here's the thing about that. You don't do that explicitly. You do that implicitly. You do that subconsciously. You do that without knowing that you're doing it. Third, a final temptation, I think, is that older men and older women can be softened and distracted by the leisure culture of retirement. 
So when you've sort of reached the end of your work life and you've come to this period where you're gonna sort of settle in, there can be kind of a distractedness. You know, one of the things you tend to think about is, no, it's the young people who are distracted because they're working all these hours and trying to raise toddlers and trying to then, you know, going to baseball games and soccer games and other kinds of things. It's just crazy, 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 crazy. And so that's the distracted period in life. But when you get to the end of life, you retire, you're not distracted at all because you have all this free time on your hands or, or whatever. Well, it's the leisure that distracts you. It softens you from gospel living, that which is called for in the scriptures. So the culture of leisure idolatry can have an effect on older men and older women in the church. Secondly, the culture of youth idolatry. The culture of youth idolatry. This is a culture that basically worships youthfulness. Uh, we see this among all of, sort of in, in the entertainment industry, we see this especially. So we have Hollywood actors and actresses who want to look like they're 25 even when they're 70. There's the desire to do whatever you can to be young, to appear young, to seem young. That's important because youthfulness is an idol in our culture. I was at a conference just recently and one of the preachers was saying, he was an older guy, but one of the preachers was saying that when he was a kid, that you, you kind of looked up to your father and your grandfather and all because you wanted to grow up and you wanted to be old. And so it was this, this kind of a looking up to them and he said he could remember when he, when he, first, when he put on his first suit and he was dressing like his, like his grandfather, or like his father, and he felt like he had kind of, kind of reached that point, like he had grown up. This is, this is a culture of many decades ago, not our culture today. Our culture today is very much worshiping youthfulness. So in this culture, you may begin to feel like there is really nothing that you can do, like uh, the young people are taking over. Uh, there's really no, no place for you. There's no place for your gifts, for your talents, for, the, for what you have to offer the church, that you are no longer useful, that you've been pushed aside or replaced by younger people in the church. There's a temptation to feel that way and even to grow bitter about that and even to have animosity in your heart towards younger believers on account of that. And also just the nature of aging is that there is a, a, a lack of energy perhaps or even a lack of mobility so that you're not able to do what you used to do. And I think this is coupled with the culture of youthfulness that creates a sense in which, or I'm sorry, the, the, culture, yeah, the culture of youth, youth, youthfulness that creates a sense in which you are useless. You begin to feel that way. So for both of these reasons, I think there's a temptation to shut down for older men and older women in the church to shut down in living the gospel life. So what is the alternative? The alternative is to never stop applying the gospel and cultivating the character and conduct that accords with it and that is specific to your stage in life. One of the things that we should notice about this passage is that it recognizes that no matter what age group or, or what sex group you belong to or what place in life you are in, it doesn't matter because there are specific ways in which the gospel of Jesus Christ can apply to you. Very specific ways. And this passage makes that clear to us. And so, against our leisure and youth worshiping culture, I think older folks in particular can be encouraged that there is still a gospel life to be lived even now. So it's a life for all ages and all stations. Secondly, it is a life of ordinariness and self-control. 
One of the things that we are called to in the Christian life is zeal. This is not a word that we hear very often in the English language. Zeal, devotion, it's not something that we are frequently uh, encountering in books that we read or websites that we frequent. We don't see this word very often, but it is something that is a very important idea within the New Testament. So even in our book here that we're studying in Titus, you'll see over there on the wall in chapter two, verse 14, it says that Christ died to what? To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Zealous for good works. Zeal. We also see this idea of zeal in Romans 12, 11. As I mentioned earlier in my prayer, Romans 12, 11, do not be slothful. This is what Paul says. He's going through chapter 12. He's given, he's given 11 chapters of just deep theology. Theology about justification by faith. Theology about what it means now to be in Christ, not in Adam. What it means not to be a slave of sin, but to be a slave of righteousness, a slave of God. What it means to be dead to the law. How do we understand that? Dead to the flesh. What it means that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And going through chapter 8 and all the expectation of the resurrection of the dead that will come when the creation is renewed. And then how God has been working in redemptive history in Romans 9 through 11. Jew and Gentile and God's sovereignty over all of that. And then you get to chapter 12 and he just begins to list all of these things that we should cultivate within the church. What it means not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And in that list, he says in 12:11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Zeal, zeal. But it is very tempting to think of the Christian life or zeal in terms of loud and obvious displays of Christian devotion. This is very much a temptation, especially in our culture, because we tend to be event-oriented, even in the way that we think about the church. We tend to be event-oriented. So, for example, when I was a youth pastor, I remember going to these camps, these youth camps. They were, there, there were lots of fireworks. There were big events, and all, everyone would come and there would be all of these speakers, there'd be all of this singing, there would be famous Christian singers who would come and sing and there would be sort of all of this intense hoopla, all of this intense loud display and show of Christian devotion and zeal. We tend to think about it in terms of an event. What about all these conferences that we attend? We tend to think that the conferences themselves are sort of the highlights of the Christian yearly calendar. So, so bam, that's a moment of zeal. Bam, that's a moment of zeal. And so we have all of these events sprinkled throughout the year by which we measure the intensity and level of zeal of the Christian life. We see this also in our short-term missions culture. You know, what is it really about to be zealous for God? It's about, well, I'm going next year. Next year, I'm going to Liberia. And, and then after that, we're going to Afghanistan. And after that, so you, know, you think about it in terms of these mountain peak experiences sprinkled throughout the year, and those are the events that encapsulate Christian zeal. We also are great lives oriented. Great lives oriented. What do I mean by that? Well, in 2017, we have 
the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation with the 95 Theses of Luther on October 31st, 1517. 500th year anniversary. And so one of the things that you will see as we begin to sort of, as people promote this anniversary and as we see it throughout, one of the things that you will very frequently see is Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and all of the other guys. It's great lives oriented. What does it mean to have Christian zeals to be like one of those guys? That's where it's at. That's how we sort of rise above and really reach out and serve God. I wanna serve God, therefore I'm gonna be a pastor, I'm gonna be a missionary, or I'm gonna do this, or I'm gonna do this great thing. We're great lives oriented, or we tend to focus on these expressions, these outward, loud, clear, in view, in full view expressions of Christian devotion. But what we see in our passage is that the Christian life, zeal, is about faithful, day in, day out, living out of the gospel, period. That's it. One of uh, the professors that I had in seminary was Andreas Kustenberger, and uh, and he, he taught a small course on reading theological German. And I remember sitting in that course and he was, he was, I don't even remember why he brought this up, but at the beginning of the course, very humble man, loved the Lord, active in his local church, but a great scholar. Any of you have probably read different things written by him. Some of his commentaries are some of the most used various books of the New Testament. And at the beginning of this course, I remember just off the cuff, I don't even remember what was the context for him saying this, but he just made the comment that the Christian life is, is very much lived in the mundane. The Christian life, the glories of the Christian life, the beauty of the Christian life, the faithfulness of the Christian life is very much just lived out in simple devotion to the Lord. Day in, day out. No one sees it, but Christ sees it. And those are the only eyes that matter. When we stand before God, there are only two eyes that matter. Those in Christ's resurrected body. He looks always upon the things we do in secret, the things we do in secret, our Father rewards us openly. Mundane, simple gospel living. The gospel life is an ordinary life. It's not an event-oriented life. It's not a great lives-oriented life. It is a simple, day in, day out, faithful, ordinary life of devotion to God. So where is your enthusiasm placed? Are you event-oriented? Are you mountaintop experience-oriented as a Christian? Are you sort of aspiring to be like X, Y, and Z character in church history or X, Y, and Z character today? Or are you simply living out the faithful Christian life like what we find in these verses? Chapter two, verses one to 10. That's zeal. That's what it looks like to be zealous for the Lord. We can all leave here this morning, this is the great news. We can all leave here this morning and cultivate this kind of life. No special position or event required. Not at all. You can leave here this morning, you can say, God has done this for me in Christ. All that I read there on that wall and there on that wall and all that I read throughout the Bible, God has done this wonderful thing for me in Christ. I'm gonna walk out of here today, I'm gonna live the Christian life, I'm gonna live a gospel life. I don't have to wait on the next event. I don't have to wait on the next thing to happen. 
It's now, and it's in the ordinary. That's good news. That's good news in terms of application. No special position or event required. And at the heart of this normal, everyday gospel living, we find this repeated idea of self-control. So look at verse two. Verse two. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Verse five, look at that, younger women. To be self-controlled. And then we see it implied for older women as they are told not to be slaves to much wine. Look at verse three. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. By the way, the self-control that is to be inculcated in younger women is to come from older women. Older women are to train younger women to be self-controlled. Therefore, it's implied for them. Older men self-controlled. Older women self-controlled. Younger women self-controlled. And then look at verse six. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So there are a lot of details in this passage that we'll look at next week, but one that runs throughout, that you constantly see throughout this passage is self-control. Self-control in many ways encapsulates what it means to be zealous for the Lord in your daily life. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, how often do we think about, I'm gonna do this great thing for God, but you don't control yourself. You don't control yourself. When, When you're tempted, you just give in. We don't fight. We don't even put up warfare. We don't even pray. We don't even expose ourselves at the earliest moments of temptation to God's word or to a Christian song or to something that reminds us what is good and pure and noble and so on and so forth. We don't do that. We don't fight. But we sure are excited when the next conference comes. We sure are excited when we can go to church and do this great act of service or we can lead our gospel community group or get up and preach or do anything like that. But in those tiny moments in which we say no to sin, That is where we find Christian zeal. That's gospel living. That's at the heart of gospel living. And this is because, if you're wondering why, okay, self-control, why? This is because at the heart of our salvation, listen to this, is the idea that we've been liberated from something to something. We have We used to be slaves of sin. We used to be. But we were made free from sin, liberated by God from sin to become God's slaves, Christ's own possession. And that's exactly what we find in chapter two, verse 14, as I just read before, who gave himself for us. And by the way, the one who owns us gave himself for us. That's incredible. That's incredible. He gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We belong to Jesus. He is king. He is Lord. We are his slaves. We are his bondservants. Self-control says this. I am no longer enslaved to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over me. Romans 6, 14 I am no longer enslaved, I belong to God. And listen to this, self-control is a fruit of the spirit and it is an expression of our being possessed by a new master as he, through his spirit, works in us to put to death the deeds of the body. 
Self-control is not something we just create and produce. It's not something that we just go about doing and that's what we focus on. It's something that the spirit of God produces in us and it is a constant reminder that we are no longer enslaved to sin but we are slaves of God. So self-control is at the heart of what it means to live a gospel life. It's not just a rule. Control yourself because it's good. It's a gospel idea. Number three, a life of community and continuity. A gospel life is a life of community and continuity. Gospel living can easily become an individual endeavor. But our text leaves no room for that. No room. This is most explicit when we look at younger women. They grow in gospel living from the training they receive from older women. So look at verses three to five in our passage. Chapter two, verses three to five. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Dot, dot, dot. Goes on to explain the kinds of things that older women are to inculcate in younger women, are to train them towards. So here's an application for younger women. Do you value this? Do you seek this? Do you, do you participate in the life of the church thinking to yourself, I need these older sisters in the Lord desperately to grow? Because here's the thing. Without that, there is no gospel life for you because this is God's means. This is God's means. We oftentimes think we come up with our own means, the, our own means for how we're going to grow. This is God's means for how younger women in particular grow in the local church. Do you value the older sisters in the church? Do you, do you seek them out and say, please disciple me, please mentor me, please train me, teach me, I need you? Is that your attitude or no? Individualistic. And to older women, I say this, are you neglecting God's pattern for growing your younger sisters in the Lord? Maybe for some of you older ladies, the, the settling in, the complacency, the past achievement resting has set in a little bit. And one of the ways that you can say no to that is to turn to your younger sisters in the Lord and to say, I want to disciple you. I want to mentor you. I want to help you be a better mom. I want to help you be a better wife. I want to teach you what it looks like to live a, a gospel life as a young woman. I've made so many mistakes. I've been there. Let me, let me share my wisdom with you that God by his spirit has given me. This is to live a gospel life in community. Older men serve as an example of faith, hope, and love. Look at 2-2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Faith, hope, and love. The three great theological virtues that encapsulate Christian living. Here, older men are to, are to have these things solid. Faith, hope, and love. And that's emanating out into the body. Younger men looking to older men and seeing their faith, their trust in God, their love, they pour out themselves for others and their hope in God in the face of all the struggles that we have in this life. And everyone benefits from the preaching and teaching of gospel leaders, of the elders as a whole. As we see with Titus as an example, look at chapter two, verse one. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. You see Titus is doing this. Look in verses six to eight. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects. 
to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. This is what Titus is doing and by extension, this is what the leaders are doing. We need this. We need this desperately. So the main idea is this. You cannot live a gospel life detached from the local church. Our culture says you can. Our contemporary evangelical culture cultivates that. But it is not biblical, as we see here. So let your zeal be focused on belonging and attending whenever you are able. Let me say that. How much focus, when you think about your growth as a Christian, how much focus do you put on the fact that you belong to this people of God? And how much focus do you put on attending when the people of God are together? Oftentimes we say, oh, that's just church attendance legalism. It's not church attendance legalism. Aside from the fact that we're commanded, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together in Hebrews. Aside from that, there's this. There's the fact that a gospel life is impossible without belonging and attending. It's impossible without being with the people of God. I'll share personally, one of the things that, that I was most affected by as a child was the fact that my parents were always at church. They were always with the people of God. Three, four, five times a week, we were around Christian people, always involved with the church. I mean, I, I look back at my memory bank as a kid, and so many of my snapshot memories are at, with, with church people, doing church stuff, engaging with the people of God on various levels, some recreational, some praying, some reading the Bible, images of sermons and time together at different gatherings and so forth. That stuck with me. And it will stick with your children. And it will shape their gospel living. And it will shape your gospel living. So a gospel life is a life of community. And growing out of that, it is also a life of continuity. What do I mean by that? A life of community and continuity. Well, just as there is a a community here and now in the present tense, there we see in terms of gospel living, there there is a community across time. The communion of the saints There's a communion across time. This is not not a a reason to pray to saints. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking simply about that across time, that there is a, a continuity of gospel living. And so you see in our passage, especially this with the younger women and the older women, the older women pass along what it looks like to live a gospel life. And then the younger women, guess what happens to them? They become older women. And when they, some of you are like, oh, when they, they, they become older women. And when younger women become older women, then they are beginning to teach younger women. You see, that's beautiful. See the continuity of the Christian faith, community across time. A gospel life is a life of continuity. Finally, as we finish up this morning, a life for witness and defense. A gospel life is a life for witness and defense. Throughout verses 1 to 10, we find repeated one of the main purposes or chief motivations for a gospel life. It's sprinkled throughout this passage. So much so, so much so, that as I went through, I tried to, to discern kind of even how to delineate this passage and how to even 
what to to entitle a sermon based on this passage? What do I do? Because it seems that you don't just have these, these various lists. You have sprinkled into these lists comments like this. Verse five, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse seven, verses, verse eight, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You see that? It's like the glue kind of holds this passage together. That tells us something. It tells us that there is an objective, a goal. There's a purpose, a motivation, an incentive for living a gospel life. And here we see that a gospel life is both apologetics and evangelism. Now, I didn't say a gospel life is about apologetics and evangelism. I said this, a gospel life is apologetics. A gospel life is evangelism. It is a witness and it is a defense. First, apologetics. What do I mean by that? A gospel life is a a defense. A gospel life, as we see in these verses I just quoted, silences and puts to shame those who revile the Christian faith, i.e. those who revile our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who hate him, those who mock him, those who spit upon him and trample him underfoot, by our gospel lives, they are silenced. They cannot speak against our Christ because our lives indicate the truthfulness of our claims about this Jesus about his glory, about his perfection, and about his possession of us. Silencing and putting to shame those who revile. One of the early church fathers was a guy named Tertullian. And Tertullian wrote a defense of the Christian faith. And in his defending, he wrote much, but in his defending of the Christian faith, he comments on Christian character. He comments on how Christians conduct themselves in the Roman Empire. And this is basically what he says. He says, you kill us because we're Christians. You revile us, you mistreat us, and you persecute us because we are Christians. But how many of our people are in your prisons for other crimes? Crimes, being Christian, not a crime. How many of our people are in your prisons, he says? None to very few. How many of our people are fed to the lions and put up against gladiators because they've stolen or murdered or done all of these other things that you see in society? He says, no, it's your pagans, your fellow pagans who fill your prisons. It's your fellow pagans who are fed to the beasts and who fight the gladiators. Not us who bear the name of Jesus. What Tertullian was saying is this, Christian character and conduct hold up a defense of our Christ and the truth of the faith which was delivered from him to us, that which is based on his death and resurrection. It defends it. It holds it up as true in the public square. It holds it up up as true to those who would otherwise revile it. Secondly, and as we finish, evangelism. A gospel life is evangelism. It is a witness. Verse nine Look at verse nine. Well, go ahead and look at the end of verse 10. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It is not just about defending it from blasphemy or reviling or mistreatment. 
It is not just about defending the glory of Christ. It is about spreading the glory of Christ that other people, people who would revile, that they will revile and they will revile and then they will revile and then, and then they will stop and they will praise. They will, their mouths will be turned from reviling to praising because we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. To adorn that, what we find on that wall, to adorn that truth, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We adorn that. Also, for we ourselves were once foolish. I can't see that one so well, so I'll read it. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is what we adorn, display, show off when we live a gospel life. Let's pray. Our sovereign Father, thank you for this salvation which is not from ourselves but from you alone. Thank you for the grace which you have shown us in Jesus Christ which trains us unto godliness, unto good works. Father, we see ourselves so frail, so imperfect. Father, we fall far short and yet you honor our works done in Christ. They please you, Father, done in Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And one day you will graciously and kindly, though they are so imperfect, reward us for them. Father, what a wonderful blessing it is to belong to you, to be your slaves, slaves of the one who sent his only son to die, slaves of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, that you own us and that you call us to rest and accept your great, loving, merciful grace and that you call us to live out that grace through godly living, through godly character, godly conduct, renouncing the sins from which we were, slave, from which we were saved and in which we were formerly enslaved. Thank you, Father that you have been gracious and kind to us. Thank you for today, for this time in your holy word. We pray that it will, it will sit well in every heart. And God, we pray that your Holy Spirit will use it to convict, to rebuke, to, to encourage, to build up in righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.